But that, that pain is not of God. That pain was caused by, by people's wrong understanding of things. And if there's anything I can do, it's to, you know, wake up every day and to try to heal that kind of pain and to stand alongside others who are trying to heal that pain. Welcome to the East Anchorage Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Gray. 2009 in Anchorage is commonly known as the Summer of Hate. That year, an equal rights ordinance was proposed by the Anchorage Assembly, and conservatives came from near and far to testify against equal rights for the LGBTQ community. The measure passed the Assembly, but was vetoed by the mayor, Dan Sullivan, and there were not enough Assembly votes to override his veto. For a taste of what a typical testimony was like back then, Here is a clip of Dave Bronson, now mayor of Anchorage, arguing that LGBTQ people choose to be the way they are and therefore should not be granted equal protection. Note, clips from the Anchorage Assembly meetings in 2009 are subpar audio. Uh, Covering any new ground here, okay? So the question is, is this. If someone is not born homosexual, if it is not genetic, as is Dr. Collins, who is the director of the Human Genome Project, he says homosexuality is not genetic. It is not innate. If it is not, then there is culpability here. That is, people are coming to you tonight to ask for special privilege, special recognition under the law, under the Municipal Code of Anchorage, based on a behavior that is chosen. Today on the show, we have a guest who testified forcefully in favor of the Equal Rights Ordinance. Michael Burke, senior pastor of St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Midtown Anchorage, confronted a hateful, angry crowd to speak in support of equality for all. He remembers well the climate in Anchorage in 2009. We discussed that summer, today's divisive political climate, and how he came to be a priest in the first place. Michael Burke, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Andrew. It is a pleasure to be here. So you are the, do you, I don't know in the Episcopal Church, do they say priest? Do we say reverend? I, I am a, I am a priest. Uh, I'm a pastor. The, the kind of the office title is rector. Okay. Which is an old English word. Uh, so I'm the, I'm the rector or, you know, in plain speak. Uh, senior pastor, uh, one of the one of the clergy at St. Mary's Episcopal Church, up on the corner at Lake Otis and Tudor, right on the hill. And how long have you been there? I've uh, served that community in this capacity as rector since uh, about July of 2000, so 22 years. Um, but my situation is a little unique in that uh, that was the community that sort of raised me up and. Uh, embraced my call uh, to ministry and sent me off to seminary back in the late 80s, early 90s. And I, wow. I, went, I to, went to seminary in uh, Rochester, New York, and uh, my wife and partner Nancy and I lived there for eight years, and I served churches in that area of the country, and then uh, accepted a call to come back uh, to St. Mary's. Well, I want to hear more about your background and your relationship with Alaska. For now, I want to skip forward. So you started there in 2000, and then um, uh, summer of 2009, it has been uh, 
colloquially described in the media as the summer of hate. It, it was the summer of hate. <laughs> and so what made it the summer of hate? Tell us a little bit about what was happening in Anchorage at that time. Yeah, well, in 2009, um, there was a lot of controversy over non-discrimination, uh, especially for people that were gay, lesbian, transgender. And um, there, the assembly had voted in August 7-9 uh, to, to ban discrimination. But uh, then Mayor Dan Sullivan. Seven, seven to two. Seven to four. Seven to four. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but then uh, Mayor Dan Sullivan uh, vetoed it, and mm-hmm. the eighth vote was not there to override the veto. Mm-hmm. Um, but in what led up to that was a series of what seemed to be endless testimonies. Uh, in retrospect, given everything we've seen over the last two years, Maybe it wasn't remarkable, but at that time, it was unprecedented. Uh, People were bussed in uh, from activist conservative churches in the Matsu Valley on buses wearing red shirts to identify sort of their team. And they lined the the streets uh, in the area around Lusak Library where the assembly chambers were. And uh, anybody going in to testify had to sort of run a gauntlet of, of very hostile people. Um, I remember I was walking in, uh, dressed in my clericals with my clergy collar and, uh, a woman who was there protesting in the red shirt, uh, stepped off the, the curb in front of me, uh, spit on me and hissed at me, Methodist. (laughs) And it's, it just, it struck me as so funny. Um, for so many reasons, including I didn't realize Methodist was a slur, mm-hmm. um, and I, I didn't look terribly Methodist, whatever that means, um, but just the the, the vitriol. Uh, and so she assumed that you were going to testify in favor of equal protection. Oh, yeah. At that point, I mean, this had gone on for an endless series of days and stretched mm-hmm. into weeks. And it was pretty evident to the crowd that gathered there every night in opposition to any kind of non-discrimination or equality uh, who the people testifying Mm -hmm. on the other side were. Mm -hmm. And there was a number of clergy that were testifying in favor of full equality for all people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and we were among the targets, uh, as was most of the LGBTQ community Mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, so a lot of that vitriol was directed towards us personally. Well, and I guess because you didn't have a red shirt on, so maybe there was an assumption if you're not wearing red, then you're on the other yeah. side. Um, it was brave to be one of the people testifying in support of non-discrimination then, because like you said, you had to run a gauntlet to get in. I would like for us now to listen to a little piece of your testimony and then uh, talk a little bit about it on the other side. Members, you may believe that it is wrong to be divorced or to drink alcohol socially, to use rippies or gamble. You may believe it is wrong for women to be in leadership. But you do not discriminate and refuse to serve those persons in your businesses, in the community. Because as a civil society, We have established as the rule of law basic equality that allows us to have a civil conversation with one another about those areas which we do disagree. 
And I am a firm and a strong believer that we bring our religious values into that conversation. But equal rights is the bedrock basis, the prerequisite that allows that conversation to happen in a healthy community. So I urge you to support this. Our conversations, our biblical theology will continue. My reading of Holy Scripture is very different than many of you, but so be it. Let the conversation continue in Thank respect you. for one another. Thank you. Thank and you. you have a question, sir. I haven't heard that in over 10 years. <laughs> it's um, well, the, crowd, the crowd goes wild. Um, and you hear that on the thing. Like, you know, there's support in the room for what you just said, which, given the description that you had sort of leading up to it, you wouldn't expect that. So what was the reception? Do you remember the reception that you got as you were leaving the building that night, as you walked back? Do you remember? Yeah, those were pretty tense times, and those were pretty difficult days. Um, I wanted to take a little exception to your introduction uh, about bravery. The folks that were, were brave in that um, were not uh, those of us who were clergy or those of us who sort of enjoy the you know, the heteronormative privilege that comes from the wider culture. They were the people from the LGBTQ community who spoke out at risk of losing their jobs, losing their housing, um, all kinds of vulnerabilities. Those were the people that were brave. Those were the people that each and every day when I would ask myself, do I want to go back there again? I could not allow them to stand, to be there and to stand alone. That we, we simply had to stand together. I thank you for that and I appreciate that. What I would say is that I think for some LGBTQ people, we are compelled to speak up and um, we're going to because we kind of feel like we have to, probably in the same way that you feel like you have to. But what I'd say is, is that, that, that there is a real, um, I'll speak for myself, just a, a great appreciation for people who are not LGBTQ people speaking out forcefully in support of these protections because it's not about you. I think that that's, so you and I can kind of like, have a disagreement there. <laughs> I think that you are actually engaging in a level of bravery and outspokenness that is uh, equal to the LGBTQ person standing up there and doing it as well. So I am super grateful. So one of the things that you talked about was how people in the audience, people there testifying come from a different religious tradition, a conservative religious tradition that might not recognize divorce, that might not want women in leadership positions, that, you know, several other things that would, might be part of their faith, but they would still serve them in a restaurant, still rent an apartment to them, still do business with them. What do you think it is about homosexuality, LGBTQ stuff, that makes them not want to do business? Like, what is the difference? Yeah, I, I, I think we need to maybe take a little bit broader perspective. Um, 
I think this is a, a group of people um, who, you know, have various backgrounds and things. But one thing they have in common is their sort of view of the world uh, is in many ways in fundamental conflict with how others view the world. Um, there is this sense of a God-ordained order uh, that, in my opinion, looks an awful lot like their prejudices. <laughs> but in their, in their mind, uh, they understand as this is sort of the created order, and anything that goes against that is, is an existential threat to them and all that they believe and hold dear. Uh, I don't believe that anybody wakes up in the morning and says, gee, I, I'm going to go out today and do everything I can to oppress other people and hurt and wound them. Um, so this has a background. Uh, I think, I, I think, um, tell me your question again. <laughs> well, I was asking why, why this issue for this group of people when yeah. they could pick a different issue? Well, and they have picked a different issue. I mean, 40 years ago, this would have been women who were wearing pants or maybe a little bit further behind, or who were, you know, acting inappropriately for their gender by taking leadership in various organizations. Um, when you have a community that has very clear boundaries that are enforced by, you know, what you might think of as an internal purity code, we all need to believe this. Um, it's really important to have some other outside that bounded community um, that is the target of or the representation of what's wrong in the world. And at various times, it's been, you know, uh, people who were marrying interracially. Uh, it was people who are getting divorced. It were women who were asking for divorce and leaving abusive and dysfunctional marriages in the in the 60s and 70s. Uh, to, I would have said 20 years ago at that time, 2009, it was anybody who was gay and lesbian. Today, it's the trans community. It's trans kids. Mm -hmm. uh, why it is there always needs to be somebody out there who is the other, um, even, even who is the enemy, um, whose voice must be countered and silenced, and whose very identity and presence in our culture has to be erased. Um, that's one of the ways that you reinforce uh, I think your own sense of a bounded community, a gated community. I'm going to share a little bit about my own background. So I grew up Methodist, actually. So it's interesting that that's Methodist. Yes, I was going to say like that. But what I was saying is interesting about Methodists is that Bill and Hillary Clinton were Methodists and went to a Methodist church when they were in the White House. Laura and George W. Bush were Methodist. They did not go to the same Methodist church as Bill and Hillary Clinton. I grew up in George W. Bush's Methodist church, which was not accepting of LGBTQ. There's an enormous rift in the Methodist church, as there has been in the Episcopal church, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But I grew up in a church that was very openly hostile towards LGBTQ people. And I was quoted scripture a lot. I was a child who was obviously different. I think most people assumed I was going to be gay. And so the church really rallied around that. They were going to make sure that that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so the scriptures have been quoted to me over and over and over again. The result for me was, is that when I came into my own and sort of found my way, my way was 
I don't use this book. This book is not helpful for me. I'm going to find a different path. Mm-hmm. So I almost, in a way, have more in common with the Matsu Valley's interpretation than I do with you. Because for me, that book says these things, and those things are not the truth for me. So I have disregarded the book. Um, what could you say, or can you speak a little bit to that? Like how somebody who says, well, this is, you know, for I agree. Yes, it says things about divorce. It says things about women. You know, there's horrible things that happen in the Bible. There's, you know, I, I acknowledge all of that. And that's why I have a different faith tradition. Can you talk a little bit or talk to me, like bring me around to not discarding that book? Yeah. Well, the, the Bible, as we think of it, is really a collection of different books um, and collection of writings that came together over a long period of time. Uh, broadly speaking, uh, I think it's fair to say that they represent uh, people's experience of their relationship with their creator, with God. And um, it includes a lot of how things were understood culturally at the time. A lot of it is pushback to the other uh, Near Eastern cultures that were saying very different things. Um, We've lost a lot of that today. There are certain religious traditions that have uh, either a lack of critical uh, literary and historical biblical criticism or do it in a way that would be unrecognizable uh, to many, uh, say, mainline uh, seminaries. Um, and then the Bible has countercurrents and currents. Um, it's, it, it's been simplified in a way that I think is completely unrepresentative of the major themes of both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. And it's sort of been codified. Um, it's made common cause with elements of um, white nationalism, uh, you know, white white supremacy. It's made common cause with an order and a view of the world um, that walks hand in hand with imperial power, that walks hand in hand with patriarchy. Um, I, I think it's completely misrepresentative of, of what Scripture is about. Um, I take my, my reading of Scripture uh, really beginning with, say, the Gospel of John. There's four canonical Gospels. John's was written latest, uh, two, arguably three, perhaps in those days, uh, generations after Christ, and therefore has the most theological reflection. The other gospel writers spent a lot of time saying what happened. John's community talks about what does it mean. It's not arranged chronologically, but thematically. And it is the gospel that says most clearly that God is love. Um, And it makes much of Jesus' final commandment to love one another as I have loved you. Uh, For the John's community, the writer of John's gospel, God is love. And We therefore read the Hebrew scriptures through the eyes of a Jesus who is, um, you know, God with human skin. It is love embodied, Uh, even to the point where in the face of the might of the Roman imperial system, with all of its collusion from religious leaders of the time, uh, refused to back down from that message and ultimately was crucified. And then as the Christian faith tells the story, uh, rose again 
in a in a very clear sense that in the end it is love that wins. It is truth that wins against all the the might and the systems and what the scriptures call the powers and principalities of this world. That's a very different reading uh, than a reading in which there's a set of rules that you will sin and be condemned unless you repent of them. And curiously, in American Christian history, they include things like dancing and playing cards and, of course, more serious things. Um, I, I think within the broader theological tradition, uh, we've recognized for hundreds of years that sin, that is anything that distorts our relationship with God, our creator, and our relationship with other people, um, is not just personal, but it's also social. Um, there are still entire branches of Christianity, types of Christianity, that don't really recognize uh, that sin, that human brokenness can be social, it can be institutional, it can be systemic, as well as personal. It's not an either or. Um, you know, what I, what I hold in my heart and how I enter into each and every day is deeply connected uh, to how I live my life and how I participate in different systems that hurt, wound, and abuse other people. Um, so I appreciate that a lot. What was happening in 2009 in Anchorage, for the most part, doesn't sound loving. It doesn't sound uh, that it's coming from a place of, place of love. But having watched a lot of these testimonies uh, to find those such as yours, there are some who go up who I actually believe that in their heart of hearts, because it's what they've been told, mm-hmm. is that LGBTQ people mm-hmm. are going to spend eternity in hell if they're not shown a better path. And they really are in their own certain way trying to express what they believe is true and they're trying to uh, help me avoid eternal damnation. Mm-hmm. How do you speak to that person? Yeah, I think people like people coming from that perspective and you know I I work really hard at not being too judgy because it's it's all many people have known and they're surrounded by by families and systems and churches uh who all hold that kind of common set of beliefs together and, and reinforce it every single day. They often speak of tough love, mm-hmm. that the really loving thing to do is to confront the person uh, with their, their wrong behaviors and beliefs, their sin it would be a language they would, they, would, they would use. And only then can they repent and change their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know... I'm going to call bullshit. Uh, I don't doubt their sincerity. Um, but much of what they call sin um, is, is a human construct. I don't believe it's of God. I don't believe it's of the whole of Scripture. And, you know, uh, tomorrow I'll get a, a string of Bible citations, right? Because that's, that's how the game is played on that side of the fence, it's to throw Bible Scriptures to claim that you're in opposition to the Holy Word of God. Uh, but it's a very narrow, it's a very limited, um, I think it's a surface level understanding of Scripture. Uh, I think um, the different ways in, in the context is missing. Um, uh, 
I think that side of the fence likes to talk a lot about how truth is not relative. It's an absolute with a capital T. Uh, I would say that truth is deeply relational and truth is always contextual. <laughs> to understand what's being said, uh, you need to understand the broader context. And I, I don't think the work's been done to understand the broader context then or in contemporary culture today. Uh, and I think some wrong conclusions have been reached. Uh, and unfortunately, as people live out those wrong conclusions, they cause unbelievable pain. Uh, I, I did one funeral this week, and I was aware of two others, in which the deceased was, uh, came out uh, as, as gay or lesbian uh, in their early life and was rejected uh, by their family, um, who believed they should do this kind of tough love and uh, did everything from pray that the demon of homosexuality be cast out uh, to sending people to gay conversion therapy uh, to deciding that the only way that they could really redeem the soul of their loved one for all eternity would be to cut off all contact with them in hopes that they would somehow amend their life. Um, we had an alternative alternative funeral just this past week uh, for a man whose family came in and, you know, took control of the situation after his death and, and left his partner of many years and all of his friends uh, on the outside. Um, and we were able to gather together at St. Mary's and honor an amazing life and a beautiful human being and to comfort and to grieve together. But that, that pain is not of God. That pain was caused by, by people's wrong understanding of things. And if there's anything I can do, it's to, you know, wake up every day and to try to heal that kind of pain and to stand alongside others who are trying to heal that pain. Why do you think you ended up as a pastor with this particular view while so many others ended up different. What, I mean, I guess now I'm getting back to your okay. youth. Yeah. Your, like, what, what, what circumstances allowed you to have this view as opposed to the other? Yeah, uh, probably my churchy answer uh, is, is that, you know, the, the grace and the spirit and the power of God is kind of responsible for all this. Um, I, I grew up as the fifth child, the, the youngest son of a traditional Irish Catholic family, a very devout family. I, I went to daily mass uh, all the way through high school, although no one ever suggested I do or forced me to do so. I felt a calling to the priesthood probably when I was 12. My sister remembers me speaking of it. But I always felt that I was, I was called to have a family, and there was a conflict there. So like any good Irish Catholic uh, boy of that era, I, I prayed to God to take away uh, one of these. In fact, I you know, ran away, uh, maybe, uh, to Alaska as far as my passport. As far as you can go without a passport, uh, and came all the way up here hoping that, you know, the hound of heaven wouldn't find me. Um, Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Adirondacks in a, a small uh, mountain community uh, south of the Canadian border, uh, north of Lake George, New York. And um, I, I found a lot that was wrong with the world, you know, as a 
very inquisitive, maybe a little bit precocious, 10, 12, 13, 14 year old. And on the television at that time, you know, we only got uh, one channel. Uh, There was only three in those days. And through a little black and white television came my view of the wider world. My siblings were all at least 10 years older or older than I. Uh, So, and yet um, through that television came every night on the nightly news where we all gathered uh, the body count from Vietnam. And I remember these indelible images of caskets being loaded off of planes at Andrews Air Force Base of, of kids that were 18 and 19 years old um, and grieving families. And of course, that was the age of my brothers. Um, and I, I also remember images of armored personnel carriers rolling uh, into Pine Ridge Reservation in what would become the occupation at Wounded Knee. Um, I remember when I was about 12 or 13, uh, a very impressionable age, and music was incredibly important to me. Uh, I remember the first one of the first rock concerts ever televised on one of the national networks. It was uh, Bob Dylan uh, at one of the campuses of the University of Colorado, probably in 1976, perhaps, uh, singing the song Hard Rain. Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Uh, A song with a, a sense of weariness of the world, of seeing too many things. It spoke and evoked images of the civil rights movement, of of racial inequality, all kinds of economic inequality uh, in the world. And it's really kind of a call to one's own personal mission. Um, That all, along with the, the scenes that were replayed in my early years of the death of John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, all sort of congealed for me. And made me, uh, I think, a real angry teenager. Um, And I also had heard enough scripture uh, growing up in my church um, to realize that there was uh, a disconnect uh, between what the church I grew up in was saying and what I was seeing in the world. I struck up a friendship with a man who was an Episcopal priest, and I poured out some of my angry questions at him. Why isn't there a church that will speak up and, and will preach uh, the message that I hear Jesus bringing? Uh, and he simply looked at me and said, yes, why isn't there? And I said, won't anybody do anything? And he said, hmm, won't anybody? Uh, and he said, I want you to do this. I'm going to challenge you to read each of the Gospels and to read them repeatedly. And when you read the Gospels, at least when I read the Gospels in their entirety, I heard clearly a different call and a different vision. I heard in the, in the life and the witness of Jesus a care and a concern for every human being, especially the most vulnerable, all those who are locked on the outside of places where power and privilege live, Um, I heard a message of human compassion, human frailty and brokenness. And I heard a message on how the power of God uh, can heal us and bind us into what John's gospel calls, you know, one body in Christ. Um, There was a disconnect between that and the church that I experienced. So speaking of Vietnam, 
I, I mean, was your church not saying anything about Vietnam? What was happening at that time when you asked that Episcopal priest, um, you know, why, why a church wasn't speaking out? What were you hoping to hear? And what were you actually hearing? I mean, what were, flesh mm-hmm. that out. Yeah, I I don't know how much of this came from homilies, which, quite frankly, I I think were rather short and not memorable. Uh, But from my broader... uh, A homily is like the Catholic sermon. It's like the shorter version of the sermon, Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, But a lot of what I came, uh, what I understood about the faith came through uh, the Christian education, youth classes and things. And um, what I was hearing was concern about sexual purity, Things like impure thoughts. Um, it, it's an interesting commentary on human nature and human religious systems. This amazing obsession we have with sex. And that maybe that is somehow connected to your earlier question about why does homosexuality arise a passion in some people? Uh, anything that has to do with sex. Uh, it had to do with a lot with sort of a, a moral code of conduct. Um, that to me seemed largely uh, that did not speak to the concerns of the world around me, uh, that did not ask the bigger questions about systemic injustice, about racism, about the ways in which seemingly good human beings can get together and yet the system has a negative spirituality that, you know, to use old biblical language, seems almost demonic in its power to hurt and wound people. Um, The church I grew up in, for all of its many wonderful things, it taught me. uh, And maybe it it planted in me uh, (laughs) the sense of outrage at at injustice. Um, But ultimately, I I felt called uh, beyond that community. So what did you want to hear from the church? Because we kind of talked about, you know, that you were hearing sexual purity, that's your goal, you know, that, that, that would seem to be the message. What could, what could the church have said that would have satisfied you, that would have said this church is seeing what's happening in the world and has a message that's resonating with me? Yeah, I, I think I would have been encouraged if the, the church, the message I received to the, from the church was more in line with the Jesus that I read about in the Gospels. Um, the care for the the hurting, uh, the poor, uh, the marginalized, the one who in a very kind of crafty and savvy way uh, did some very subversive things uh, with the powers that be uh, in his particular context. And that revealed to the people who knew him, you know, these were folks who said, in this person, we see the essence of the invisible God. Um, that's, that's how they experienced it. I guess what I'm pushing on is what would Jesus have said about Vietnam? What would Jesus have said about that war? What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus, you know, wouldn't have said anything about the Vietnam War, (laughs) of course, any more than he would have said anything about guns and abortion and, uh, homosexual rights or, you know, anything else. Um, but he did have a lot to say about the occupation of Palestine uh, by the Roman Empire. And And he had a lot to say about the collusion 
with the religious leaders of that time who were in in some cases, and I don't want to paint too broad a brush here, more concerned with the maintenance of their own religious system, their own set of rules about insiders and outsiders, about who's worthy and who's not worthy. Uh, Time and time again, my reading of the Gospels is Jesus transgresses the boundaries, the social and religious boundaries of his time to make a genuine human counter with the Syrophoenician woman at the well, who was at the well at a time when traditionally women didn't go to the well. All the signals are there, if you know the time and the culture, that she was a scandalized woman. Um, It's revealed that she'd had multiple husbands, uh, and yet it's one of the longest dialogues recorded between Jesus and another person. I never sense in that dialogue anything other than respect and compassion and care for another's well-being. I mean, we can, you know, we can go through story after story of the gospel. Hey there, folks. Spirit of Alaska here. Let's take a little time out. Let's refresh ourselves with a little guided meditation. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. And I want you to think about someone who would enjoy the East Anchorage Book Club podcast. Imagine yourself recommending the podcast to them. And imagine their joy at discovering something new. Now let that breath out and slowly open your eyes. Now don't you feel more centered, more in tune with your own spirit? I'm glad I was able to help. And now, back to the interview. Well, you know what I'd like to do is move on. We talked, I mentioned that there's these two different Methodist churches. Mm Mm-hmm. There's something similar within the Episcopal Church. I mean, I am not an expert on this. So this is really going into your realm. But I do mm-hmm. want to talk about Gene Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the years exactly, but it was a big deal. I, I remember it being a big deal for me as a young LGBTQ person that Gene Robinson was going to be the first openly gay Episcopal bishop. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Yeah. Um, and that this caused a huge rift within the Episcopal Church. So I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that, how you fit into that as an Episcopal priest, mm-hmm. and um, what that experience was like. Yeah, the history of the Episcopal Church um, is different than that of the United Methodist Churches. The issues and the, the way they're organized are, are very different. Um, but speaking just about the experience in the Episcopal Church, the equality for the LGBTQ community goes all the way back to the early 1960s. In 1964, um, in the Diocese of New York and Newark, there were pushes uh, to decriminalize homosexuality uh, for the full equality of people regardless of sexual orientation. In the 1960s, the Diocese of Rochester, New York, uh, began uh, passing a liturgy quietly from priest to priest. That was essentially uh, a marriage rite. 
uh, for people of the same gender. Um, in 1977, Ellen Barrett was ordained the first openly lesbian woman who's priest in the Episcopal Church. Um, throughout the 80s, there was various statements, and the church pushed for um, change in civil legislation to uh, protect the full equality under the law of people regardless of sexual orientation. So there was a backstory to that. There were numerous, uh, you know, gay and lesbian priests uh, during the, the 80s and early 90s. Um, but Jean Robinson was somebody who had worked for the diocese, Episcopal Diocese of Vermont in one of their key positions, was well known throughout the diocese, well respected uh, and loved. And um, he was he was part of the bishop election process in the Episcopal Church. Uh, the people uh, elect the, their own bishop and call their own bishop. And there's candidates. And they tour and they answer questions. And he uh, stood for election. Uh, as the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Rochester, uh, where I was at the time uh, in the early 90s. And um, uh, he lost just very narrowly, just by a few votes, um, despite having widespread support. The concern was the ordination of the first openly gay bishop would cause a rift uh, in our sister churches, uh, throughout the world that are in a very different place on this issue. And there was concern about that, that that would cause uh, a lot of pain. But then uh, years later, in 2003, uh, Jean was elected by his home diocese of Vermont. And the church general convention that meets every three years uh, was in the position of voting to approve that because of some timing and peculiarities. Um, there was uh, a great debate uh, that included the scripture, included a lot of other uh, thoughts and, and concerns. And ultimately, uh, the general convention, um, rather strongly, uh, by, a, by quite a margin, approved the ordination of Gene Robinson. Uh, I was a part of what's called the House of Deputies. Uh, I remember the vote very well. I remember the celebration uh, when the vote was announced. Um, back here in Anchorage, a cinder block was thrown through the front windows of St. Mary's Church in response to that vote. Um, so there certainly was controversy even then. Um, I don't think Jean was the first gay bishop. I think Jean was the first openly and honestly gay bishop. Um, so, yeah, that was an important part. I mean, since then, uh, the church moved forward in a lot of different ways. Um, it called for a repeal of all laws, secular laws that prohibit discrimination against transgender people. In 2009, that really issue moved to the fore. Uh, today, we have numerous uh, gay, lesbian, and transgender clergy. Um, there's quite a number of transgender clergy in the Episcopal Church, who some transitioned prior to ordination and some afterwards with the full support of their churches. Um, and we have a number of, I don't think anybody keeps track anymore of the number of openly uh, gay and lesbian bishops, uh, because it's not of widespread concern. The, there, there was a split, but, but I don't want to overemphasize that. There was a robust debate um, but in the end, the group that sort of split away was, you know, arguably around three to five percent. Um, and most of these votes uh, passed by margins in the high 80 percentile. Um, so 
and, and you get to vote in favor, against, or sort of a divided vote, um, sort of. Uh, so the numbers against were even smaller than, than what you what they seem. That's really interesting. As somebody who's not in the Episcopal Church and remembers this time period, mm-hmm. the media definitely gave that three to five percent a lot of play. And I remember hearing interviews with people who opposed um, gay clergy. Yeah. In such a way that I really thought it was like a 50-50 and this was barely going to pass. And, you know, I think you could make an analogy to a lot of issues that we see even in Anchorage today. That there's a very loud uh, minority opinion that manages to co-opt the debate and make it seem as if um, something is much more controversial than it is. That... uh, certain positions have much more support than they have. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think the parallels are pretty clear. Uh, during that period in the life of the Episcopal Church, there was a secular organization, the Institute for Religion and Democracy. I think it was called IRD, uh, who poured an enormous amount of money uh, from a few well-funded donors into the battle against equality in the Episcopal Church because they they saw the churches at that point as the tip of the spear in terms of cultural and societal change in the United States, and they did not want to see that change happen. Um, it's interesting that after they lost that vote in the Episcopal Church, and once they saw the numbers and the margin, uh, they immediately moved all that money and redeployed it into um, efforts within the Presbyterian Church USA and the United Methodist Church uh, to oppose full equality for those who are gay and lesbian. Um, but they're well-moneyed. Uh, they had very slick operations. And uh, I'll give them the credit. They, they knew how to get their message out and how to make it seem in the media uh, like they actually held the, the votes and the hearts and the minds of the silent majority. Um, and, of course, when all was said and done, it, it was revealed just how small their numbers were. Um, you know, I also want to say, you know, People of good faith, uh, but a faith uh, completely different understanding than mine. Um, Today, the Episcopal Church really values uh, a broad tent uh, where people are welcome, regardless of their politics or their gender identity or social orientation. So you'll find Episcopal churches that uh, are comprised of a lot of conservative, like-minded folks. They're They're definitely not representative of the whole of the Episcopal Church, um, and they tend to be a a somewhat smaller segment. Uh, I think today the the vast mainstream of the Episcopal Church uh, issues of equality are sort of fundamental to our identity uh, for all people. In fact, I was on a legislative committee uh, Zoom call this last week, uh, where a whole package of materials were being uh, presented and debated and discussed that would welcome uh, families of trans youth and non-binary folks and uh, liturgies for name changes and other significant issues in transition. Um, and uh, a number of, of uh, transgender clergy testified in favor. A whole lot of transgender youth spoke about their own experience of, of transition within their home parishes Um, And I think 
well, I forget how many people testified, but when it came time for testimony against, there was no one. There wasn't a single person who had signed up to testify against this package of bills. <laughs> that is interesting, um, which to me shows great progress, shows um, that there has been a real change over the last few decades. Would you say that there's been a big change in Anchorage from 2009 to 2022? Well, I think there has been. I mean, I think back when there were no, uh, there was no ordinance for uh, equality under the law in employment, uh, in housing, in public services, uh, there was the issue of fear of change. Uh, I can remember clearly all the things that were said were going to happen. Um, uh, by the opponents of equality and by the I'm opponents. just going to throw it in there for the listeners. Because this uh, ordinance that failed in 2009, it was ultimately passed in 2017. Um, so we eventually mm-hmm. got this ordinance passed and signed by a mayor. Um, it just took longer. Yeah, in, in August 11th, 2009, uh, the Assembly voted 7-4 to four to ban mm-hmm. discrimination. And then Mayor Sullivan vetoed it. It came back again in 2012 uh, under the title Prop 5. Uh, it was uh, the margin there was 57% opposed to equality. Um, so that gave you an idea of what the numbers were. We had the one Anchorage coalition of businesses and clergy and the LGBT community and just everyday moms and dads and folks. But then in 2015, in September, uh, there was a resolution called AO 96 um, that passed 9 to 2. Right. Sorry, 2015. Thank you for correcting me. Yep. Now, immediately, uh, folks like the American Family Council and those who opposed equality uh, marshaled their forces and and with some outside money and their own organizing, uh, put forward Prop 1 that in 2018 would have stripped out protections specifically for trans folks. Again, kind of here you see the evolution. First, we're against all gay and lesbian people, and now the focus has become trans people. Uh, To the credit of the folks with the Fair Anchorage and the One Anchorage campaign, there were numerous efforts uh, uh, that were made uh, by folks on the other side of the issue to say, you know, well, we'll drop this if you exclude gender identity and if you Mm -hmm. peel off the trans Mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. I think they were quite surprised um, that in in all cases, those coalitions hung together and said no full equality for the trans community, no full equality. It, mm-hmm. it matters to every single one of us. And I'll just do a little plug for an old podcast guest. We had Bill Evans on November 2021, and he, as a Republican, voted, refused to compromise on that. So he was part of that coalition that passed it in 2015. I I remember the conversations well. Um, uh, Bill Evans uh, ranks high, in in my opinion, uh, because of the decency, the honesty, and the openness with which he listened to concerns. He met members of the trans community. Uh, He made some very reasoned and principled decisions, uh, and he found himself uh, ultimately uh, pushing for for the ordinance. Um, And I will respect him to this day because of that. 
Uh, in 2018, this Prop 1 would have stripped out the protections uh, for trans folks. There was, at the very end, a great demonization of people that were transgender. There was a cartoonish ad in which a poor mom is carrying her little infant baby in her arms to drop the child off at daycare. And as she hands her baby over, she ha puts her baby into the hands of a big hairy man in a dress uh, with sort of ominous uh, uh, sense and foreboding about all this. Um, it, it was it, it was exactly in continuity with the long line of the racist tropes uh, we've seen against people of color, against people that were Jewish at different historical periods. Just the target this time was a caricature mm -hmm. uh, of uh, the scary trans person, and we were fear we were greatly afraid that at the end that would win the day. Uh, it did not. Um, I think the vote was 57% opposed rolling mm -hmm. back those inequalities. Mm -hmm. But what, what your question was, Andrew, was, you know, how have things changed? When all those debates were taking, period, taking place during that period, uh, there was a great sense of unknown. If we pass full equality, will small business owners go out of business and be sued? Will preachers be arrested for preaching in their pulpits? Will churches be forced to close? Uh, will, will, will little girls, our daughters, have to go into restrooms with big, scary men? Um, the fear-mongering. Uh, whether it was real and sincere and genuine or whether it was it was trumped up for political purposes, the equality ordinance remained uh, its repeal was was uh, was was ineffective did not did not happen, and nothing scary happened. The community continued to go on with daily life just like they always had only with the understanding that we don't discriminate against people in public housing. Nobody should lose their job um, because, you know, one of the famous cases before the Supreme Court was a man who uh, talked at work about uh, wanting to join his uh, gay men's softball team, and he was fired. It was one of the famous employment cases. No one should be fired for being who they are. Uh, or who they love in their place of business. And we realized that no preachers were arrested, no churches were closed, businesses were not having to be bankrupted by onslaughts of lawsuits, that all of the things that we were told would happen if they did not happen, and, and life went on. So if you look at public polling today, um, I looked at a public poll from 2019 and I'm doing this kind of from memory, but the, the number of people in, in favor of non-discrimination laws in Alaska was in the 80s, mm. right? And, and it was not very long ago that the numbers were uh, in the other direction. Um, so we've learned that, gee, the, the people that have been demonized, that we've been told to, to look out for, um, we found out that, gee, they're friends and neighbors. They live next door. They're the person that delivers my mail, as Jennifer Johnston used to tell us when she was on the assembly. Uh, they're just regular folks uh, like you and I, uh, part of our communities, um, and there's nothing frightening there. And which gets back, I guess, to the heart of that 2009 testimony uh, was about the degree of fear 
that people were, I believe, genuinely experiencing? I listened to a lot of testimonies, as I mentioned earlier. Some of the testimonies that I listened to are people who are today at very high levels in municipal government. And I wonder how much their opinions and thoughts have evolved since then. Obviously, I would need to have them on the podcast. Um, They are invited, and they knew it. Um, But I think... uh, just kind of summarizing, I appreciate you've done such a great job as a guest today. You've really came prepared and given us a really great history of um, Anchorage since 29 and before. And I'm super grateful for that. I'm really grateful for um, you being the minister at St. Mary's Church so close by. The last question we ask of all of our guests is if you could recommend a book to our listeners. That's right, because I know the East Anchorage Book Club is really all about the book. (laughs) So I I not only recommended a book, Andrew, I brought you one. You did. Uh, This is called Love is the Way, uh, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. And it's uh, by the presiding bishop. Uh, We in the Episcopal Church uh, elect a bishop to be first among equals. Uh, not to have any power or authority over us, to be our convener, and in many cases, the spokesperson for the church. Uh, This is a book by Bishop Michael Curry, who you might remember, uh, he preached a sermon at the the, uh, royal wedding a few years ago. Um, But it's a little bit about his story, and it's about how a true understanding of love, not the sentimental kind of Hallmark cards, but the kind of love that really is willing to walk the difficult miles um, on behalf of human dignity and and human community and why that love really matters and how we live that out in the world, not in an abstract way, but through our politics, our activism, and our human relations with one another each and every day. So I brought you a copy. Thank you so much. And it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you to Corey Coolidge for making this podcast listenable. Thank you to you, our listeners. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Next week, a special July 4th episode with lifelong Alaskan entrepreneur and community activist, Jasmine Smith. Please tune in.